So this afternoon, immediately after the service, uh, we're going to pack up as quick as we can, uh, and then we're going to head on over to Paul and Dana Jasmine's house. Um, Paul and Dana, are you here? They're there. Okay. Uh, can you stand up for one quick second? If, if you need it, they're going to jet out, actually, probably, either right as we're ending or something, but if you need something, you can just grab them as fast as you can, maybe, and you can, otherwise you can come see me. The, the address is posted there on the, the bulletin that you got as you walked in, uh, but if you have any questions, if you've got a dumb phone and not a smartphone that has GPS, find somebody that that's, uh, lives in 2014, and then, just kidding, I'm just kidding, uh, just joking. Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, uh, you can always, um, you can always grab somebody or you can grab them. Grab me after the service. I'll be here until we're done, uh, taken down. Okay. And then I'll help you make, no, make sure to know how to get there. But I do hope that you'll be, um, that you will come. It's, it's going to be a, uh, a really special afternoon. We've got four people in our church that are getting baptized today. Four people as of right now. Um, uh, a couple of them are here in the service. If you're getting baptized and you're here in the service, would you mind? Cause not everybody's going to be able to be there. I get that. So if you're not able to be there, we want a, we want a chance to be able to, for you to be able to see those who are uh, uh, declaring publicly, I'm identified with Jesus Christ. Can I put you guys on the spot and make you stand up? If you're getting baptized today, there's a couple of you in here I know. Would you mind standing up? Um, there are, thank you, uh, there are some really neat stories um, as we've gotten a chance to be able to get, uh, talk with, with each of these four and their, their journey, what brought them to Christ. I, I wish I had time to be able to just kind of go through each of their, their stories we've been able to, uh, to, to learn. Can I tell you one? I'm just going to tell you one, very, very quickly. I'm not going to tell you the whole story about how she came to know Jesus, but I'll, came, I'll tell you how, how she came here uh, to Twin Oaks. Um, about, about two months ago, uh, almost today, about two months ago from today, um, we, we uh, unleashed kind of our, our new... Um, partnership with the Timothy Initiative. Remember, the Timothy Initiative is a church planning movement that we're supporting. We've raised some money to go out and plant some churches in northern Vietnam. We're going to be starting a church planter training center to, to train church planters in Vietnam. And so we brought in the president of the organization, David Nelms. He's one of my spiritual mentors. We brought him in, and he came and he shared the vision of TTI. The following few days, I spent with him going out and meeting different ministry leaders and, and pastors and being able to share the vision with TTI and just kind of sat in on the meetings, helped connect them with some of the San Jose ministries. The, so, so the very next day after he, he, he shared this vision with us, we were driving in the car together to one of these meetings, and we were just talking about the upcoming trip that we're hoping to take as a church out to Vietnam this fall. And I was telling him, I said, typically when I take trips, teams on the trips, I've been there, and I've got, you know, I know the people that we're going to be staying with, I've, we've got connections with the, the translators and so on, so we know that, you know, we're going to have somebody to at least help us translate and be able to connect with the people. I said, but I've never been to Vietnam before, this is going to be interesting. And as we were talking, I thought, I said, you know, I, I wish that we had uh, Vietnamese-speaking people in our church, because, uh, you know, 10% of our population here in San Jose is Vietnamese. Did you realize that it's that, 10% Vietnamese, it's amazing. We love the diversity here in the city. 10%, and I thought, you know, it's a shame we don't have more Vietnamese people in our church. And I, and I said, I guess I'm just going to start praying for more diversity in our church, more Vietnamese people to join our church. That was a Monday. I get home from our meetings and that afternoon, and I, I check my inbox. In my email inbox is an email from, from my now friend, Jan Hua. And Jan had emailed and said, um, she emailed and said, you know, Pastor, I, I found your church on Yelp. Should I just became a Christian, and, and I feel like God is, is calling me to join a church so I can grow in my new faith. Can I come to your church on Sunday? Um, same day. 
And so, and so I wrote back and I said, yes, of course, you can come to our church. And I'll tell you, you don't get those emails. Those emails do not land in your inbox all that often. Okay, but that day, and so I looked on her little uh, profile and it says, Jan Hua, Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. Okay, and so she, uh, I try not to get my hopes up, but on Sunday she actually shows up. And um, she's actually here and I pull her aside. I'm sorry, I said, I'm sorry, I'm not usually this forward, but I got to tell you, I prayed for you the day that you emailed me. I prayed for you that day. And you're here. No pressure. Just stick around, right? <laughs> um, no pressure. But uh, I prayed for you. And after the service, she came up and said, I think this is it. I think this is my church family. And she said, can you tell me more about baptism? And so um, Jan's the reason why we put this date on the calendar. And then there have been several more that have joined in. Um, Jan, this, this is Jan here, if you, if you don't know her, Jan Hua. She's been here for two months. Um, and so I, I got to tell you... Um, I'm just going to take it one step further now. Two weeks ago, then she emails me and says, guess what? My younger brother has been, notice, has been uh, noticing a real change in me um, over the last several months. And, uh, and we, we, it's, it's led to a lot of conversations about some of the things we've been talking about here at Twin Oaks. And she's like, my brother just accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. Um, she comes from a, a, a you know, Buddhist family. And, um, and she said, um, he wants to know if there's any way that he could get baptized with me on, on Sunday the 9th. So Jeffrey, Jeffrey, her brother's going to be baptized with her today as well this afternoon. So anyway. <laughs> so Jan, it's just been such a joy to get to know you. Um, so anyway, that's just, one, that's just one story. There's more. We could tell more, but we've got to move on. Okay? Um, so be there with us. Celebrate with us today as we, as we um, welcome in this person into our family and into the family of God. Okay, um, and I will say this: if you have never been baptized, um, there's still a chance for you to be baptized today. Um, baptism does not save you. Okay, it doesn't. You don't enter into the family of God as soon as you come up out of that water. But what it does simply, it's an outward expression of something that's happened on, in the inner life. It's it's an expression saying, "I am identified. I'm unified with Jesus Christ in His death." And in his resurrection, I belong to Jesus. It's a public statement saying, I'm a Christian. And so that's, and that's something that Jesus commanded us to do. He said, go make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey. And so it's a, it's a step of obedience to Jesus. So if you've never been baptized, I want to encourage you. Maybe, maybe today's the day where you make that, take that step. Okay? Um, let's, let's, let's go to the scriptures. Grab your Bibles. Turn to John chapter 3. Heavenly Father, we do thank you um, for... Jan and Samantha and Savannah and Jeffrey, we thank you, God, for the, the great gift that um, you have given us with your presence and with your power that is bearing fruit in this church. We are so humbled, Lord, that you would choose to be with us and that you would choose to act among us and act through us. And God, we pray that that continues this morning as we study your word. We pray, Lord, that your word be a, that, that living um, uh, and active uh, uh, sword, Lord, that, that pierces, that penetrates, that, that breaks down and that builds up. And we just pray, God, your blessing today. We do pray for truth, and we pray for the ability by the power of your Holy Spirit to respond in faith to what you have to share with us. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, John chapter 3. We're in verse 22 through verse 36. Uh, We're going to finish up the chapter uh, chapter 3 today. We're going to read this bit by bit and just try to break each section down as we go. Let's start in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, 
And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Now, we're going to keep going here, keep reading, but let me just point out one thing. Verse 25 says, a discussion arose between John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Okay? And then the very next verse says, and they go to John and they ask him, you know, he, you know, he who is with you across the Jordan, this Jesus guy, look, everybody's leaving and going over to him. Okay? What do those two things have in common? Why does one lead to the other? A discussion about purification. Therefore, they go to John and say, why is everybody going to Jesus? Okay? What, what do those two things have to do with each other? We're not going to answer that yet, but we will in just a few minutes. But before we pass that, I wanted you just, just to keep that in your mind. Keep that question in mind. I don't want you to miss that. We'll answer that before we're done. Let's keep going. Verse 27. John answered them, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So John's disciples are saying, John, rabbi, teacher, your fame, your prestige, your influence, your power, your... Your glory, it's all fading away. It's all fading into the background. It's all fading into the shadows. Jesus is taking it all. What are we going to do? And John says, no, 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 guys, all that I've had, all that I've enjoyed, all that I've done, this ministry, this influence, this power, this glory, everything, it was all given to me by Jesus in the first place. It belonged to him in the first place. He's not robbing me of anything. And then he says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John is saying, guys, this isn't about me. This ministry, this life that I have been given given from heaven isn't about me, it's about Jesus. I was created and commissioned to be about God's fame and renown, not my own. I am just a voice crying out in the wilderness. That's what I am. He's the groom. I'm just the friend of the groom. He's the one that should be getting all the attention. The camera should be flashing in his direction. The rice should be flying in that direction. The cheers, the applause, the celebration belong there, not here. It's for Jesus, it's not for me. John's voice had gathered the people in that wilderness. Hundreds and thousands of people had been coming to hear John preach. His voice had gathered the people, but now another voice was being heard, a greater voice, a clearer voice, a stronger voice. John 10 says, the sheep hear his voice. He calls them by name and he leads them out. The sheep follow him for they know his voice. This new voice, this strong voice teaches with authority. This voice uh, raises the dead. This voice calms the storm. This voice makes the demons tremble. This voice forgives sins. This voice calls children, little babes, unto himself. This voice woos and wins back his bride. The voice of the shepherd was meant, always meant, to replace the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. And John, John describes this by using this really vivid illustration here. It, he uses this picture that, the, that his Jewish listeners would have understood. He calls Jesus the bridegroom, okay? And that's not a new thing. We know that. In the Old Testament, you're going to see all the time the union between God and his chosen people, Israel, is oftentimes uh, likened to a marriage relationship because it was so close and it was so intimate. It, it was likened to a marriage relationship, So much so, when Israel went after foreign gods, it was described as infidelity, adultery. And the New Testament's going to continue to, the New Testament's going to continue to use that very same picture. It's going to call the church the bride of Christ, right? 
Um, so John doesn't, he says, you know, I'm not the light. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not even a prophet. I'm just a voice in the wilderness. But one title, one very unique title that he does take onto himself, and this is very interesting. One thing that he does take onto himself is this title of the friend of the bridegroom. Okay? And this is, this is uh, very unique, very significant. In the Hebrew culture, the friend of the bridegroom was called the shoshpin. Okay? Uh, actually, our idea of a best man comes loosely from this tradition, this Hebrew tradition. The shoshpin, the friend of the bridegroom, this one guy, uh, acted as a liaison between the bride and the groom between, during their betrothal, during their engagement. He, he, he kind of passed messages, passed notes between the, the, the bride and the groom. Um, the, the, the shoshman, the friend of the bridegroom, he helped to, to plan the wedding. He arranged a lot of the details. He is the guy who delivered the invitations for the wedding. He is the guy who acted as, um, you know, sort of the um, MC over the actual wedding celebration. But he had one really significant special duty. The most significant duty that the friend of the bridegroom had was this. It was on their night uh, it, was on, it was on their wedding night. It was the friend's duty to guard the bridal chamber. Okay? It was his duty to guard the bridal chamber and to make sure that no other false lover in the dark would come and sneak in. Um, he would stand... So the, 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 the shoshman, the friend of the bridegroom, would actually stand inside the bridal chamber with the bride. Okay? In, in, uh, and he would wait for the bride to, bridegroom to come, and he would only open the door when he heard the bridegroom's voice. Okay? The bridegroom would knock and say, hey, it's me. And as soon as the shoshman, the friend of the bridegroom, recognized the, the bridegroom's voice, then and only then would he open the door and allow the, the groom in to be able to meet his bride. And then when the, when the two lovers were united, he would go away go away rejoicing that his task had been accomplished successfully, that the lovers were finally together, finally united. He was not bitter against his friend because of the bride. He didn't begrudge his friend because of the bride. He knew that his task was simply to bring the bride and the groom together, and now that he was done, he willingly and he gladly faded into the background. He stepped out of the center of the picture. Okay, that was the friend of the bridegroom. That was his responsibility. Um, he willingly let go, joyfully let go, and he rejoiced as his, the bride and the groom were united. Now, but, but that, that raised a question in my mind this week uh, as I was studying this. You know, because John says, you know, I, I rejoice that they're uniting. What if the friend of the bridegroom was not married? What if the shoshpin was still single himself, right? And, he, and his buddy, this groom, just got connected with his bride. They're just enjoying this new marriage relationship, and he's got to walk home to his own place alone in the dark. Don't you think that on some level there could have been some bitterness, some resentment, some jealousy? Couldn't there have been, couldn't there have been some of that? The groom is experiencing this new relationship, and this friend has to go back home alone. But what, so what I want to suggest to you today is this, that John was able to let this go. He was able to let go of his titles and his influence and let go of his glory. He let it all fade with joy because John was already married. John was already married. He was already experiencing that marriage relationship with God. John was able to give himself away because of the gospel. He already had everything in Jesus. It's only when you are united to God through Jesus that you are finally free. Listen, it's only, it's only when, you are, when you are united with God through Jesus that you are finally free from having to grasp for those things, like the titles and the influence and the power and the reputation to make yourself feel good. You no longer have to grasp after these things 
to find your security and your self-worth. John was secure. That's why he could let it all go with joy. He was secure. Are you secure? Everyone has, I had to ask that question this week. Am I secure? If it all fades, if it's all stripped away, am I secure? Will you stand before God today? And at the end of time, will you stand before God clothed in your own efforts and accomplishments, clinging on to these things, trying to make yourself feel good, trying to, trying to make yourself right in your own eyes and in the eyes of God? Will you stand before God clothed in your own efforts and accomplishments, stained by your sin, marred by your sin, or will you stand clothed in the accomplishments and the efforts and, and, and the, the deeds of Christ, purified from your sin? This is where verse 25 comes in. I told you guys we were going to answer the question of why purification led to this conversation between John and his disciples. And this is it. The, the, the question essentially was, uh, how are we purified? And then that led them to go and ask, ask John about the, really the identity of this Jesus guy. Who is this Jesus guy? I think he is taking all of our prestige, all of our influence, all of our people. How are we purified? John tells us, he says, when he sees Jesus, behold the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How are we purified? Through the substitutional sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Substitutional. He, he acts as our substitute. He died in our place. Jesus was like a lamb led to the slaughter. He drank the cup of suffering that belonged to us because of our sins. And he drank every last drop. Do you believe that? He drank every last drop. And there is now no more condemnation for those who would place their faith in Jesus Christ. We're made clean. We're purified. In verse 25, there's a discussion about purification. How are we purified? And then in verse 29, there's, there's, uh, John talks about Jesus as the bridegroom. He's talking about him as the Lamb of God and as the bridegroom. John's mixing his metaphors here. You don't do that, right? But I think there's a correlation here. I think there's a reason. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 9, John writes, he says, the angel said to him, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Isn't that interesting? I will show you the bride, that's us, the wife of the lamb. The lamb is the bridegroom. The lamb is our bridegroom and he has paid our bride price. And it was not cheap, was it? He paid with his own blood. But he endured that cross out of love. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And the joy was seeing us reconciled to God through him. What's been blowing my mind this week is I've been thinking through this stuff. And I know we're talking about a lot of theological mumbo-jumbo or whatever, but, but, but think about the reality of this. For those who receive him, for those who are united to him, you are as secure as him. For those who are united to Jesus, you are as secure as Jesus. Think about that for a minute. If you are united to Jesus, you are as secure as he is. He sits at the right hand of God in victory. You sit at, united with him. You sit at the right hand of God in victory. How amazing is that? Nothing now can separate you from the love of God any more than the love of God can be separated from Jesus himself. To the degree that you let that reality permeate your heart, permeate your heart, will you be able to walk through life in the good and the bad through, with, with freedom and with joy? To the degree that you let that reality that you were as loved and valued as Jesus himself You are as secure as Jesus himself. You can walk through anything, anything. The reason that John was able to let his ministry fade and step into the shadows, let it all go, was because he knew who he was in Christ. 
But it goes even deeper than that because John doesn't just say, you know, when, the disciples, when his disciples are like, you know, all of, our, all of our everything, everything we've worked for, it's all going over there. He doesn't just say, ah, it's fine, guys, I'm secure. I don't need the fame, I'm secure. What he actually says is, Jesus is increasing and I'm decreasing, therefore my joy increases. My joy has reached completion. My joy is full. His joy didn't just remain intact. It actually increased when Jesus was exalted and when he stepped out of the way to allow that to happen. He wasn't just secure. His joy actually increased, and I'll tell you how. Because John, because he has everything in Christ, he is free from having to, pers- having, having to pursue the self-centered, self-seeking pursuits. And he is now free to live for that which he was created. We are not set free through our love and good deeds, but we are set free to love and good deeds. Paul says that we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And if you and I will walk in self-giving, spirit-empowered love and righteousness and obedience, we can experience the fullness of joy because finally, finally, we are living in accordance with the purpose for which we were created. So you, you see, what, the reason why John experienced the fullness of joy is because he realized his purpose. He was living in accordance with this purpose, and that is self-giving, spirit-empowered love and obedience and righteousness, exalting Jesus Christ with his life. I'm reading a book right now by a guy named David Platt. And the book is called Radical Together. Actually, our, our elders are reading through a book called Radical Together. And this is kind of the companion book called Radical Together about how do we incorporate some of these same principles within the, the church. Um, but in the book Radical Together, David Platt says, he says, the gospel that saves us from works also saves us to work. It saves us to work. And he points out that we no longer need to approach love and righteousness and obedience as duty, but rather as delight now. It isn't, it's not just our duty, but now it brings delight. He says this. He says, when you hear Christ's radical call, you don't think, in the gospel, I'm free to ignore his commands. Instead, you think, in the gospel, I'm free to follow his commands. Because the gospel saves us from work, the gospel frees us from guilt. In Christ, we have been declared not guilty before God. This is vitally important when the church is confronted with staggering realities in the world. We need to have our eyes open to hundreds of millions of people in the world who are perishing without the gospel and starving without food or water. But if we are not careful, these statistics may only create a constant, low-grade sense of guilt for never doing enough. Guilt like this will be both an unbearable burden and an unsustainable motivator. We may change our ways for a short time based upon guilt, but true and lasting life change will happen only when we believe the gospel. As we trust in Christ, he changes our hearts, minds, and lives. He transforms how we see, feel, and act. We begin to see the startling realities of the world through the eyes of a Savior who surrendered his life for the salvation of the nations. And as we grow in relational intimacy with Christ through the gospel, we gradually overflow in radical living for Christ. Any low-grade sense of guilt gets conquered by a high-grade sense of gospel. Listen, that compels a willing, urgent, joyful, uncompromising, grace-saturated, God-glorifying obedience in us. We live sacrificially, not because we feel guilty, but because we have been loved greatly and now find satisfaction and sacrificial love for others. We live radically, not because we have to, but because we want to. Platt goes on to illustrate this um, by sharing about a movement that happened within his church. Um, he, He pastors a church in Alabama. One Sunday, he preached on... Uh, this verse in James, we're all familiar with the verse. The verse is, it's the religion that God accepts as pure and faultless is this, to, uh, I wrote it down, 
to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Okay, he was going to preach on that, uh, that verse on one Sunday. In preparation for that sermon that day, he called the Department of Human Resources in his county. And he asked them about this, you know, the state of the children in that county. He said, will you, you know, give me some details about you know, how many kids and how many needs you have within the uh, uh, foster care system and the orphan system within our county. And he said, he, asked, he said, how many families would need to step up to be able to, to meet every single need that you have with these kids? And she laughed at him over the phone. And, she said, and she, he kept pressing, saying, no, how many families would you need to step up? And she said, about 150 different families would need to step up to be able to help meet all these needs. And so, uh, you know, Platt shares this. He shares what's going on in the, in the county, and, and he shares this message and, uh, on, on that Sunday. And he told the congregation that if Christ was compelling them to serve the children of that county to come to a meeting two weeks from that day in the specific room of the church, and they would talk more about what they could do. Two weeks go by, they hold the meeting, the place is packed, more than 160 families sign up to help with foster care and adoption. Um, and they essentially alleviated their entire county full of that. Completely got, got rid of the need. Um, the folks from the Department of Human Resources were sitting in the meeting that day, eyes wide open, just mystified. Couldn't explain what's they're like. What in the world? Why, what so compels you to do this? This is what the church told them. They said, "We want to do all that we can to make sure that every child in our county has loving arms around him or her at night. We want to point every one of these children to the father of the fatherless and the defender of the weak." Platt went on to point out, as neat of a story as that is, and as romantic of an idea as that is, the romance fades after a little while, doesn't it? Um. We all know the struggles that can sometimes come with adoption. Oftentimes, some of the kids have been affected by drugs or abuse or neglect, and there are sometimes very serious implications for the families that bring in these children. But what was amazing was this is, this is what Platt noticed. He said, he said, what strikes me most often in my interactions with them, with these parent, new parents, what strikes me most often in my interactions with them is not their struggles, but their joy. Their joy. In fact, one of the new moms who had brought in uh, uh, you know, a, a, a young boy, uh, shared with him a journal entry that was written on the day of this young boy's birthday, so the little journal entry that she wrote. This, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, with this family in particular, they had one child already. They adopted a second little boy who's a, a few years old, I think. Um, and, uh, and then they immediately after they adopted this second child, who had some pretty severe emotional issues, um, they got pregnant with their third and they, the, the, their third ended up having some pretty severe Down syndrome issues. Because you can imagine some of the different struggles that they faced, some, some of the seasons of, of, uh, of, of difficulty. This is what this mom wrote in her journal the day that she and her husband and their family were celebrating their adopted son, Michael's birthday. She wrote this. She said, We all went into his room this morning to tell him happy birthday. While I was dressing him, he was jumping up and down with the biggest smile, and then he said, Thank you for giving me a birthday. I was quiet for a moment. I felt those words were not just from him, but a gift from God. He wouldn't have had a birthday in the orphanage. He wouldn't have had a t-shirt with his name on it or a family to make him a cake and sing to him. And it's not that these things in and of themselves are all that important, but they are the little things a family does for you and with you, things that I take for granted. Having people there no matter what, having someone come when you cry, being able to make bad choices and still be loved. Michael's a tough kid, and none of us will ever know what he experienced his first two years of life, but I know that God has created him exactly how he wants him to be. Although there are many days when he can make me want to pull my hair out, 
I am so grateful that God made me his mommy. Let me, this is what Platt concludes after reading that. He said, gospel-driven obedience produces gospel-filled joy. Joy. The gospel reminds us that each of us was once a child of wrath, filled with evil desires, unable to control our sinfulness. Yet God sought us and saved us. In love, he adopted us as his sons and daughters. And now when we see a child who is left alone or hard to love, we can gladly bring that child into our family. Why? Because we believe the gospel. For us, that means sacrificial love is not just our duty, but our delight. The gospel is the reason a family sold their house in the suburbs to move to a smaller home in a low-income inner-city community. The gospel is the reason business leaders are leveraging their assets to aid impoverished churches. The gospel is the reason Christians are changing their routines, adjusting their budgets, augmenting their plans, altering their ideas, and sacrificing their lives to accomplish the global purpose of God. Christians, listen, Christians work hard by the grace of God with great delight for the glory of God. Tim Keller said, Jesus asked for far more than you ever thought, but he offers far more than you've ever dreamed. That's the paradox. Jesus asked for far more than you ever thought, but he offers more than you've ever dreamed. Now, before we move on to the last section of this these, this passage here. Let me make one more comment on this. As I was going through this passage, I shared some of my thoughts with Joe on Friday, and he pointed out something in this passage that I had never actually considered before. He said, uh, do you think that on any level that John's increasing levels of joy, John's increasing joy might have come not only because he was exalting Christ, but because of his love and the concern for the people? And as he explained it, and as I thought more about that, I thought, you know, I think Joe's on to something here. If you think about it, for months or maybe even years, thousands of people had been coming out to John the Baptist in the wilderness and, and just laying out their sins before him, just repenting of their sins, just weeping in shame as they exposed their deepest, darkest struggles and weaknesses. You can just imagine the heartbreak and the burden that John must have felt as he told him, guys, just hold on, the Savior's coming. Hold on, he's just around the corner. And so finally, one day, Jesus steps out onto the scene, and he sees Jesus, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, he'll take away the sins of the world. He had just been hearing about everybody's sins, and he's confessing, and he finally sees the one who's going to take away those sins. Perhaps some of the joy that John experienced came as he watched those for whom he cared so much, and those for whom he had invested so much, finally went to the one who could actually save them finally actually experienced the forgiveness and the new life that they so needed. I was challenged by that when, when Joe shared that with me. I think he's on to something. I was challenged by that. Am I so burdened for the lost that I'm willing to lay down everything that was given me that they might meet Jesus? Am I so, will, am I, am I so burdened? Do I care enough that I'm willing to lay down my ego, lay down my reputation, lay down my time, lay down my money? Lay down my relationships that people might meet Jesus. Am I willing to let go of this tiny little kingdom that I'm holding on to? That people might see Jesus, experience the benefits of Jesus. Jesus' last commission, we say this every week, I think, but before he ascended to heaven, he said, go make disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey. That was his last commission to us. Go make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey. Christians, Christians in this room, please, let me ask you, can I ask you a couple of tough questions? 
have you ever made a disciple? Have you ever made a disciple? What are you doing today to make disciples? And who are you praying for that they might become a disciple? If your answers to those questions are no, nobody, nothing. No, I've never made a disciple. I'm doing nothing today to intentionally try to make disciples. And I'm not praying for anybody, if I'm really honest. It's time for a change. It's time for a change. I'm not trying to discourage you. I hope you know that. I'm not trying to just beat you into the ground, drive you into the ground. But I am trying to motivate you. I'm trying to say it's time for a change. These aren't my words. It's Jesus. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. Go and make disciples. Go, make disciples. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then he explains it. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We're ambassadors, people. We're ambassadors. We, we, are, we have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. What are we doing with it? Are we going through the motions? Are, are, is our life just simply filled with a whole lot of religious activity, or are we actually being spiritually productive? Are we producing? Not just fruit in us, but about fruit in others. Are we multiplying? I know that I'm not alone here. I'm not just saying this to you. I'm I'm saying this to me. This is what God's been doing in my heart this week. I know that I'm not alone here when I say I'm ready for more. Anybody else with me? Seriously, anybody else with me? I'm ready to say, God, use me. You've reconciled me to you through the blood of Jesus Christ, and now you've entrusted me with this message of grace by faith in Jesus. I want people to experience the same peace and joy and security and freedom that I'm experiencing. Use me. Use me. If you're with me, I'll tell you what we do to, what we do to begin. Here's where we start. If you're ready, here's where we start. We pray, and we commit to praying, and we actually follow through. We pray Jesus is the vine, we are the branches, we can bear no fruit apart from him. You can't go out in your power and just start doing this. It's got to be through Jesus, by the power of Jesus. He is the vine, we are the branches, we bear no fruit apart from him. We pray, we beg him to use us, and then we watch and we listen to where he leads us, and we jump at any chance that we get to be able to share Jesus Christ. We open our mouths and we share Jesus, all the while living in obedience to him, being transformed conformed into the image of his son Jesus so that people can actually see what it looks like to be saved and changed. That's individually. Corporately, we're doing the same thing. We are are continually trying to get better and better and better at being a community, being a community of faith here where newcomers can walk into our midst, walk into our fellowship and know that they are welcome and that this is a safe place. Over the next few weeks, in fact, I'm just going to kind of warn you, over the next few weeks, you're going to see some changes being made here. Um, you're going to see some changes being made here to help kind of soften this place up a bit, um, to be able to make it easier for people to connect with the, the message that's being communicated here, but also being able to connect with one another 
and be able to find a, a, a clear, uh, uh, easy-to-find, easy-to-connect place where, where people can, can ask questions and find people to pray with. We're, gonna be, we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to better what we're doing here so that we can be more effective in being able to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, in a matter of weeks, literally in just a matter of weeks, some of these shops are going to be opening up just across the street from us. Um, and thank God for that, right? Not just because we like five guys, but um, although that's, that's a real praise too. Um, but literally this place is going to explode with traffic. Okay? It's like God is sending them right to our doorstep. Again, we know that when we, moved, when we came in here two, week, two, uh, two years ago, rather, th- those were just empty fields. We were kind of in the middle of nowhere. And God's just brought them to our doorstep, just set them in our laps. And we're not going to stand idly by. We, we refuse to do that. Stakes are too high. Join me in praying. Pray every single day. Um, I pray every single day that God would bless this church with the love and the burden and the power to share the message of Jesus Christ and to be a light in this community. We've received our marching orders from Jesus himself. He said, go make disciples. So individually, corporately, let's get at it, okay? Let's go make some disciples. Not because we have to, by the way, but because we get to. Not out of duty, out of delight. We need to finish up. It seems like uh, John, as he's finishing up this passage here, John feels the need to clarify one more time to his disciples who this Jesus is exactly. Who is this Jesus that, that we should so freely give up everything for him? Who is this Jesus that we would find the completion of joy by obeying him completely and seeking his glory above our own? Who is this Jesus? He tells us, verse 31, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. This is interesting. John tells us some very important things here. He says, Jesus is from above. Jesus is a witness. Jesus brings firsthand eyewitness testimony. Sorry, I'm just making these changes, all kinds of changes. Um, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> wow. Jesus, Jesus is a witness who brings firsthand eyewitness testimony. Um, I read a really fascinating sermon uh, about this little chunk of scripture here by, by Timothy Keller this week. I want to read you just a little, little section here about Jesus being a witness. He says, In every good mystery, you have something that needs to be resolved. You have somebody who is murdered, and there are only eight people who could have done it, and yet every one of them has an alibi. But we know that couldn't be. I mean, there are only eight people who could have done it. Who done it? That's how you write a mystery. Until we can get someone who has not hearsay, but authoritative eyewitness evidence who can make sense of things, we live in the darkness. In the same way, your own life is like that. There has to be a purpose. There has to be a meaning. But what is it? Just as the witness makes sense of all the mysteries you ever read, so Jesus Christ alone can make sense of the mystery of your life. Only he can finger the culprits, and only he can tell you what to do about it. How? Because Jesus is God. He's from above. He goes on illustrator like this. He talks about a, a, a time in his life where he was flying. He's in an airplane flying from Pennsylvania to Virginia, okay, which, as you know, is not all that far of a distance. And so he was, he was flying in a really small plane, flying really low to the ground, and he was flying over these mountain ranges. And as he looked down out the window, he could see the highways below him kind of weaving through these mountains, and he could see, actually see cars driving on these little highways. That's how low he was to the ground. 
and the highways are twisting and turning as they weave through the mountains. And several times as he looked down, he could see these great big trucks laboring up these inclines, right? And behind them, what, you got 20 or 30 cars, right, driving 30 miles an hour frustrated behind these trucks. And the cars couldn't pass the big trucks because it was a two-lane highway, and the cars never really knew what was coming up around that next turn. They're blind curves, okay? Um, And so from where Keller was, he could see the entire road below him. He was up in the air, right? So he could see the entire road. And so he would look down on them thinking, man, there's nobody coming for miles. Just pass a truck already, right? But at one point... Someone just got fed up, and they, they decided they, they're going to pull out and just chance it, okay? And, but from where Keller was, he saw that another car was finally coming, and it was, and it was just very, very close, almost a head-on collision, right? Got a little hairy there. Um, eventually, he thought, if only I could communicate to them, because I see the whole road, and all they see is their little piece of lane, if only I could communicate to them and give them what I see, then they would know when they have the freedom to pass and when not to pass. Okay, you get where he's going? This is why we listen to traffic on the radio, right? Because there's somebody who's sitting in a helicopter flying above the road, looking down, who can tell us if there's danger or if there's been an accident. He can see the whole road and we can't. We can just see our little stretch of lane. His testimony comes from above. The helicopter's testimony comes from above That's why we listen to him. Keller says this. He says, The Bible says Jesus is a witness. His testimony must be received because he is the man from above. It's only from the viewpoint of eternity that you can tell a person what to do in time. It's only from the viewpoint up there that you can see the end from the beginning. God is not like Timothy Keller flying in an airplane, unable to communicate with those who are down on the road. God is more like the man in the helicopter who's broadcasting through the radio. He broadcasts through Jesus. The word become flesh. And if you listen, if you reject his testimony, if you reject his testimony, you are like the guy who is trying to pass without knowing what's coming. You're taking your life into your own hands. You're ignoring the man in the helicopter, the man from above who is trying to protect you and trying to save you. John finishes out this passage by telling his disciples how to respond. He says, verse 33, Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Verse 33 again says, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. What does that mean? To set your seal to something. Rich and powerful people at the time wore signet rings with their insignia on it. And the way in which they signed a contract was they would put their seal to it, right? That's like you and me signing a contract on the dotted line. That was their way of doing that. To set your seal to something means that you have bound yourself to it. You have entered into a contract, Okay? You bound yourself to that. And we don't like this idea much in our culture, do we? Um, that's why you're going to have so many people who prefer to live with somebody rather than marry them because they'll say, well, I like this person. I might even say that I love this person, but I'm not ready to set my seal to them. Why? Because, because setting your seal to someone or to something means that you now lose your independence. You are no longer the center of your universe. I heard a song uh, this week by a, a woman who sings over and over, Are You Going to Stay the Night? Are You Going to Stay the Night? It doesn't mean you're bound for life. Are you going to stay the night? 
There's another song that's really popular now. It's, um, I can't promise you tomorrow, but I'll promise you tonight. This is our culture's view. We want immediate satisfaction, immediate pleasure, immediate results, without long-term, sacrificial, unconditional commitment. Um, we're not offered that option. We're not offered that option here. Um, to set your seal to God does not mean, well, I'll give you a shot and we'll see if it works out. I'm not promising you tomorrow, but I'll promise you today. That's not how it works. At least not according to, to John chapter 3. You cannot pay for his love, but it will cost you everything. It will cost you everything. Setting your seal to Jesus means saying, here is my life. It's yours. I hand it over completely with all that I am, with all that I have. I honor you. I covenant myself to you. Come what may, I belong to you. I'm going to close today by inviting us to do that very thing. For some of you here today, perhaps you have never actually bound yourself to God. You have never set your seal to God. And Perhaps some of you here have grown up in, in maybe in backgrounds or in religious traditions where it's been all about performance, it's been all about your effort, your work, and you're hearing me say this, talking about setting your seal and, you know, uh, adopting kids and doing all kinds of stuff, and you're thinking, man, this sounds like a lot of work, this doesn't sound like joy, that sounds like a burden. The found, to, to set your seal to Jesus means this, it means to receive every part of who he is. And it means to, to receive everything that he says. Okay? But underlying everything that he says, underlying all of his ministry, was the gospel. Was the gospel. And the gospel says that you cannot be loved and accepted by God because of your performance. But you can be accepted and adopted into his family through the grace that he offers. You can be accepted into his family through his performance. If you don't set your seal to Jesus, your, your seal is still set on yourself, which essentially means you're, you're saying, I bind myself to my own performance rather than the performance of Jesus. I'm binding myself to my own efforts rather than the efforts of Jesus. I implore you today, bind yourself, set your seal to Jesus rather than yourself. If you would set your seal to him and to his performance, from that point on, he will give you the power to live for him. But there are others of you here today who have set your seal to Jesus. You have bound yourself to him. You have covenanted yourself to him. But for some of you, the authority of Jesus in your life is minimal at best. It's minimal. As a result, you're missing out on this joy that John talks about, the completion of joy. You all want joy, right? You're missing out on this joy that can be had. And listen, setting your seal is a one-time commitment. It is a binding covenant that we make with God, isn't it? One time, you go from death to life. You're born again in this one moment. But may I suggest to you that for your relationship with God to flourish, you must continually and consistently renew that commitment. For example, on January 24th, 2004, I told Jessica, with all that I am and all that I have, I honor you. On our wedding day, I told my wife that I love her. My wife is sitting at home with our, our kids, my my two-and-a-half-month-old is sick today, right? So if I come home today, and this afternoon, and she grabs me and says, Phil, do you, do you love me anymore? And I said, I'll pull out the wedding tape. I'll show you. I told you I loved you January 24th, 2004, right? She'd say, well, it'd be nice to hear it every once in a while, right? It'd be nice if you renewed that every once in a while. If I said, I already told you 10 years ago, how do you think that would go for me? To, 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 to what degree... Will my marriage flourish? 
to what degree, to what degree will I experience joy in my marriage if I refuse to pursue my wife and if I refuse to receive her as she pursues me? Are you pursuing the Lord? Are you receiving him when he pursues you, when he speaks? Are you listening when he speaks to you? Do you respond? Do you have anybody in your life today that encourages you in that pursuit? Do you have anybody in your life who points you back to the truth of the testimony of Jesus? Because perhaps the lack of authority of Jesus in your life is because the word of God is not dwelling in you richly. You know, Hebrews, uh, is it 3 or 13? Hebrews 3, we're told that we are to exhort one another daily, lest you be hardened. Exhort one another daily. We need that. We need each other to encourage each other. Exhort one another. Encourage one another daily, lest your hearts be hardened. Are you saturating your mind and your heart in the testimony of Jesus? Because until you do that, you will not have the authority of Jesus in your life that will bring you the joy that you so long for. God is from above, but he's not like Keller in the airplane without a microphone. He speaks. He broadcasts through his word. You can hear him. You can receive his testimony. You can set your seal to him, and you can find that ever-increasing joy. Amen? Let's pray.